I once had a feisty roommate named Virgie. She was 91 years old, and actually she was from D.C. Uh, we were roommates when I was in Los Angeles. Can you all hear me in the very back? Okay, good. So we were roommates when um, I was living in Los Angeles, and she was about 4'11", with waist-length silver hair, which I often would braid. Well, this particular day, I came home from school and I sat down next to her, and she was watching infomercials on the television, which was pretty common uh, for her. And as I sat down, she just looked at me with such a serious kind of glare, and I wasn't sure what she was gonna say, and she looked and she said, what do you think about me getting a black wig and some wrinkle cream? And as she said it, she kind of glided her aged hands across her cheek to create this instant facelift. And it was eye-opening, to say the least, to have this conversation with her because, again, she was 91 years old. Um, she was to the point where she couldn't see herself in the mirror because she was so small at this point and um, she didn't have many visitors, but yet she had this desire to attain physical beauty. And at the time, there was almost a 70-year age difference between the two of us, but it was interesting that we had some of the same desires, one of which was to be beautiful. Now, we all know that beauty goes beyond our skin's depth, right? That what we possess outwardly is wasting away, but there still seems to be this desire to immortalize the physical. So rather than age gracefully, what do we do? We, we dye our roots, right? We iron out the wrinkles and we dye it. Even corpses wear makeup, right? Even when we die, we want to be remembered as being young and beautiful. And for many, this desire to be beautiful, it starts at a young age. Um, I recently uh, looked at, there's this series of videos on YouTube. These are young girls, probably 9 and 10, 11, 12 years old. And they are asking the viewers on YouTube to rate them. Am I pretty or am I ugly? And it's pretty sad that these young ladies, they somehow have believed a lie. They're looking to establish their value and their worth and their identity in someone's opinion, a stranger on YouTube. But I can, I can relate to that to some degree. Now, when I was nine years old, there was no such thing as YouTube. <laughs> Maybe if you're young in this room, you probably find that hard to believe that there, at one time, there was no social media. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was no YouTube at that time, but I started acting when I was nine years old. I started in the theater, I started doing commercials when I was 13, and television when I was 17 years old. It was crazy because over time, more and more, I started to focus on my exterior, how I looked, how I wanted to be per perceived by others. And there was a time where I was working on a television show, uh, kind of living the American dream. I was on an NBC show working every week, and it was the American dream, but I was living in Canada and, and um, <laughs> doing this show. Um, but, you know, you would think I would be on top of the world, making the most money I've ever made in my life, and I was still discontent. And while I was on set one day uh, in, the in the hair and makeup trailer, one of the crew members mentioned one of my co-stars and how, oh my goodness, she's just so thin and she can fit into anything. And I immediately took what she said and started to look at myself. I can't fit into anything. I don't look like her. 
And I began slowly to believe this lie and it settled into my heart. And I thought, I'm not good enough the way that I am. I must change myself in order to be acceptable. So what I did was I, I decided that I was gonna do whatever it took to lose weight. So I started to diet. Um, I wasn't eating well. And eventually over time, the truth is the weight started to come off. I started getting compliments from family members and, and casting directors. They had no idea, right, what was going on. And it got to the point that I literally broke down my body. I found myself, I was in the doctor's office with tremors. I was like shaking uncontrollably because of the poor eating habits and the stress of life. I had high blood pressure. The only time in my life I've had high blood pressure. And I was just, I, I remember my doctor just looking at me and saying, Blair, what's going on? What, like, what's happening in your life? And I was just too ashamed to even, I didn't even know what to say. You know, I was too ashamed to answer his question. So just kind of brushed it off. And that was really a low point where I thought, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep living this way. A couple years later, I found myself at an informal Bible study at someone's house, and the person whose house it was, they shared the gospel. Now, if you're in this room and you're unfamiliar with the gospel is, the gospel simply means good news. What they told me was they told me about Jesus. They told me about how he died on the cross for sinners and how he rose again on the third day. Now, this was a message that I was familiar with. I mean, I was raised going to church from the moment maybe when I was nine years old or so. I had made a profession of faith. I said, I'm a Christian. And yet this friend challenged that, kind of pressed into that and said, you say that you're a Christian, but look at how you're living your life. There are contradictions between how you're living and how the Bible says a Christian should live. And I was very upset with him. Who are you to challenge me, to confront me? But he kept going back, opening the Bible and talking about how God sees the heart. He sees our motives. Because one thing that I would often do is compare myself to others. So I would say, oh, I'm not doing what that person's doing. So I'm pretty good. I'm okay. But eventually, God in his mercy helped me to see what the scripture says as I open up the Bible. And not only see it, but believe it. I began to believe it and take it in and realized I'm not a good person. I need a savior. I can't keep living my life like this, not only just eating, but I'm talking about I had sinned against God in so many ways, outwardly and in the heart. And I, I cried out to God one day. I said, Lord, feeling hopeless, I deserve the wages of my sin, which the Bible says is death. I deserve it. I'm guilty. Right? If, if I died right now, I, I couldn't say I would go to heaven. I, I deserve to go to hell and be punished for my sins. And right there, as I, as I prayed, it's like the Holy Spirit just revealed, that's why I sent my son. I sent my son Jesus to die for sinners, not for perfect people, not for people who have it all together, but for you. And I received it. I received Christ that day, and it changed my whole life. Everything transformed. But it was interesting. As things began to transform, there was one thing that... I wasn't really thinking about, and that was my eating. After my roommate, Virgie, I moved in with another roommate who was a Christian, and I remember one day we were getting ready to eat dinner, <clears throat> and she had, you know, a meal, <laughs> you know, a full meal, a healthy meal, balanced, and I grabbed a piece of fruit, and she was like, whoa, <laughs> Blair, hello, 
what's wrong with you? You know, like this is not, this isn't dinner. And it was through her challenging me and encouraging me that I started to see, yeah, there is something wrong with this. Like this is not okay. I can't sustain myself on this. And over time I started to realize I really want to be healthy. I want to eat healthy and have the energy in order to serve God and not have this focused that I'm, you know, I'm so into what I look like. I I want to be able to be used as a vessel for God's purpose. And so the focus got off of me and went outward. And by God's grace, as I looked more and more to the Lord, he started to shed me of these insecurities and this self-focus, self-centeredness. And then as I grew, I then years later got married and eating wasn't a big issue. But then I got pregnant the first time. And then all of a sudden, people are saying, oh my goodness, you look so small to be that far along. And then my doctor says, oh, you are too big. Cut back on the carbs, <laughs> you know. So it, it's like this focus again on your weight. And I'm like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. And I took a walk with a sister, a sweet sister, um, who I used to go to church with at Capitol Hill Baptist in, in D.C., named Beth Sprawl. And she encouraged me to read a chapter of a book, and I just wanted to read a short excerpt from it. It's called Loving the Little Years. And in the book, the writer says, we are not to treat our bodies like museum pieces. They were not given to us to preserve. They were given to us to use. So use it cheerfully and maintain it cheerfully. We should not be trying to fix it up and put it back on the shelf out of harm's way to try to make ourselves look like nothing ever happened. Your body is a tool. Use it. Scars and stretch marks and muffin tops are all part of your kingdom work. One of the greatest testimonies Christian women can have in our world today is the testimony of joyfully giving your body to another. And I love this because it really takes the focus off of me. And it directs my attention to the bigger picture, which is God getting the glory through this vessel. So as I share with you tonight, you know, I'm standing up here not as someone who's saying, you know, I got it all together. I have it all figured out. I got this beauty thing down. But just as a a sister, you know, who I've wrestled with these issues, the Lord has ministered to me in these issues, and I've I've seen myself being able to get the victory uh, by God's grace. And I know that this talk is countercultural. You know, the world says it's all about you, right? So you do what you need to do to get ahead, right? If you don't like something about yourself, you change it. And it's all about trying to promote, you know, the next recipe for the fountain of youth, you know, by encouraging this next, whatever, the sugar-free, free-range, organic, you know, vegan, <laughs> South Beach concoction, you know, so that you can be who you need to be because it's all about you. And really the whole point of my talk, just to kind of get it out of the way, is that it's not about you. It's not about you, it's not about me. And because of that, whether you're a Christian in this room or or someone who doesn't identify themselves as a Christian, we all too often look to the women of our culture to define what we should look like how we should be or what we should value, what we should spend our money on and our time on. And everyone has their person, right, who they can seek to compare themselves to. Whether that's the person that you just ran across in the mall, you know, in the store, the person who's close to you, it could be a celebrity, dead or alive, right? It could be Jackie O, 
or Selena Gomez, okay? Elizabeth Taylor or Taylor Swift, Halle Berry or Kim Kardashian, Miley Cyrus or Beyonce, right? All these women who are in our culture that, that we're supposed to look up to as these standards of beauty. And interestingly enough, just kind of speaking about Beyonce for a little bit, um, she is often overtly sexual in her music. <clears throat> if you're familiar with her, uh, she kind of rocks the blonde tresses with the fan that just blows in the right way, right? Um, and, you know, not a whole lot of clothes on. Um, but she has a song um, that I'm not recommending you go to try to find or look at the video at all. But I just wanted to quote a little bit of this song. It's called Pretty Hurts. And the song is about how, as women, we try to fit into this worldly standard of beauty. And one thing that she says is, ain't got no doctor or pill that can take the pain away. The pain's inside, and nobody frees you from your body. It's the soul. It's the soul that needs surgery. It's my soul that needs surgery. And I, I think she's right in that, you know, external things and systems, they're not going to free anyone from the standard of beauty that's propped up for us to model. But there's one who can free our soul. There's one who can do that surgery on our soul that she was talking about. And he can transform us on the inside. Now, before we get into how we can have this inward transformation, I want to look a little bit more into how society defines beauty. So I scanned several magazine covers. There's a few things that I was told about how I should define beauty. And it's interesting. You even look at the cover, Lady Gaga, who, uh, it's not even like a real body. I don't even know <laughs> what they were doing. Um, but I was told that you need to have the perfect hair and makeup, flat abs, how to get sexy eyes, whatever that is, how to eat your way to gorgeous, how to wake up gorgeous, the no fuss, permanent makeup, right? You can just wake up and ding, yeah. Um, and we're all aware that on the cover of these magazines is a model, and she is supposed to be a model of what the magazine promises, right? What we don't see is that she's been prepped by the best hairdressers and wardrobe people and makeup teams, and she has the convenience of professional editors who are well acquainted with Photoshop. Think about this. When's the last time you saw a celebrity sporting acne on the cover of a magazine? Right? You, you haven't. It doesn't mean that they don't have it, <laughs> but, but it's been deleted by the click of a button. Right? Last year, the singer, there's a teenage singer named Lord. I don't know why she has that name, but either way, she made the headlines when she posted a picture of herself on Instagram wearing acne cream, right? And so when that makes the news that she's wearing acne cream, and that's like the, oh my goodness, something is clearly wrong with our view of reality, right? And these celebrities and these magazines and television commercials, which we can hardly get away from, they're constantly re constant reminders to us of what society says we should look like. Perfection. Perfection according to them. 
And more on the rise is, is these women who have become popular and they've become celebrities solely based upon not their even acting ability, but based upon their looks and, you know, releasing lewd tapes and, you know, marrying someone who's wealthy, right? So we have examples in our culture like Kim Kardashian and Amber Rose, and these are models of our culture. And women, these women, are put on a pedestal because of how they look, and many feel that they need to attain this standard of what society says is perfect. But the crazy thing is, no one is perfect, right? Well, no human being is perfect. There's one, there's one who is perfect, but these standards, they're imperfect, they're subjective. And even the women who often we're looking to, they don't even want to be themselves, right? They're not even happy with who they are and they're constantly changing who they are. So beauty as our culture defines it, lures us, it lures us to wanna to put it on, right? To say we got it, we, we, we possess it for our personal gratification and public flaunting. But what's interesting is in different cultures, that standard shifts, the standard of beauty shifts. So here in America, it could be thin, it could be, you know, having fair skin, blonde hair, symmetrical features. Well, there's a group in Indonesia where what's beautiful there is big feet. Hey. <clears throat> there's a group, a Kayan tribe in Thailand where elongated necks are what's beautiful. There's, um, uh, in New Zealand, it's, a, it's about having face tattoos. There's a Karo tribe in Ethiopia where body scars are what's in. And there's even a country in West Africa where the most beautiful women of the country are those who can gain the most weight. So women are literally sent to weight camps so that they can gain, and that's what the men are attracted to. That's, you know, what's beautiful in their society. So observing how different places around the world have different views of beauty, should inform us on how subjective it really is. And that's why the Bible says that outward beauty, physical beauty is fleeting, fleeting, right? So what we wanna think about tonight is, you know, you may fit into a standard of beauty. Here in America, could be in Indonesia, I may fit, I wear a size 10. <laughs> um, so you may fit into a standard of beauty somewhere in the world, or you may not, but either way, we must value and we must believe what the scripture says, what the Bible says about true beauty. And we have to hold on to his everlasting words, which will never fade, so that we can become and remain beautiful according to his standard. And it's important that we constantly meditate upon God's word and feed our soul with it more than we feed our flesh with what society says. See, when we flip over, open a magazine, you're never gonna find someone advertising, you know, do you wanna be godly and self-controlled? You know, you wanna be loving and self-sacrificing? You wanna bear the fruit of the spirit? Like we don't get that when we walk into a department store, right? And here's where the Bible is so different because the Bible places the emphasis in the right place. And that's internal adorning. So I, I just wanna do say, I wanna say a word that the Bible doesn't dismiss beautiful things the Bible doesn't say that we can't acknowledge beautiful things. God made all things, right? He said they were good. Even after the fall, we, even after Adam sinned in the garden and as a result, the world has been broken, 
we still can look at things and, and see their beauty, right? We can look at the Grand Canyon and be captivated, right? Or look at a picture that someone paints and, wow, God gave them this gift, right? So we can acknowledge beautiful things, but that's not where it ends. So desiring to be outwardly beautiful is not necessarily wrong. I do, however, think that often our definition of beauty is what's wrong and that it's incomplete. We often stop at the physical and, and we leave out the heart completely. But in scripture, the pinnacle of beauty is eternal. So if you have your Bible, now we're going to dig into. <laughs> Please open up your Bible. And there should be a Bible in front of you if you didn't bring a Bible. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Or you also can look up here on the PowerPoint, which is conveniently available for you. And I'm going to read it. Verse 3 says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, when we look at verse 3 up here, do not let your adorning be external. What we see in verse 3 is that Peter, who's the writer of this letter, he communicates the negative, what our adorning should not be, which is merely external. In verse 4, he communicates the positive, what our, what our adorning should be, which is internal. So here, Peter is not condemning the wearing of braids or hairstyles or jewelry, right, or articles of clothing. So before you unravel your braid, <clears throat> so I remember when I first read this, I was like, oh, I need to, I, I, I didn't understand fully the context of this. But the reason that he's not saying that you can't wear particular hairstyles or you can't wear jewelry is because in verse 3 he says, or the clothing that you wear, right? So if he was condemning wearing braids and jewelry altogether, then he would also be condemning wearing clothes, which is basic. We need clothes. Please wear clothes. <laughs> it's a basic requirement. But what he is condemning is the sin of vanity and and gaudiness, and seduction, and lust, and worldliness here. He writes this letter to disperse Christians. These are Christians who were exiled, they were scattered among pontus, and all through the book he's encouraging them in their fight for holiness and sanctification. So listen, if you will, as I read a scripture that came a chapter before. You don't have to turn there. But in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's speaking to these Christians who've, who've been scattered abroad and they're living amongst others. And I think that there's something that we can learn in that for Christians, us Christian women. Because we live in this world, but we're not to be of this world. In a sense, we're scattered abroad. Our, our home is heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, not here. We're just passing through, right? Aliens and strangers, the scripture says. 
And similar to many women our culture exalts, these Greek women would spend time indulging in their, in their vanities, right? They were worldly women. They were seeking to captivate men through lust. And Peter says, this is not how we should adorn ourselves. These are not the type of women we should be. That word for adorning, if you're taking notes, it means to properly beautify, having the right arrangement or sequence by ordering. In other words, don't let your sequence or the order by how you define beauty to be primarily external. Right? In the sequence of things, our priority should be internal adorning. The inner proceeds the outer. So let's look at what Peter specifically says we should be pursuing in verse 4. He says that our adorning should be the hidden person of the what? Can't hear? The hidden person of the what? Heart, that's right. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is what? Very precious, that's right. Now, based upon this scripture, we're going to look at four truths about truly beautiful women. One, truly beautiful women, they focus on the hidden person of the heart. Number one. There we go. That inner person of the heart is the inner man, right? The, our character. So it's, it's of the heart. It means our desi- desire decisions or our intentions, our motivations. So our heart should be to please the Lord above all. We should desire to reflect his beauty. And this is what no one else sees, right? It's who we are in private when no one's watching. It means that we're not the type of women who spend the majority of our time focused upon what others think of us, but we consider what God says of us. And we ask him to conform us to his beautiful image. And two, truly beautiful women have an imperishable beauty. That word for imperishable means undecaying, having an everlasting quality. Now, earlier in this book, Peter, he mentions something that's imperishable in chapter one. He speaks about Christians having an imperishable inheritance. He says it would not, you know, it, it will not fade away. It will not decay, right? It, it, it will go on forever, and it's kept in heaven for us. Our beauty is clinging to the living hope which has come since we have been born again. And this is the result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. This beauty will be finalized on the last day when we will be like God. Now you may say, how did you get there? How do you get to this this inheritance which will never fade and connecting that with beauty? The Bible uses the word glory often in exchange for beauty. And the Bible says that we will be glorified. We're going to be like God, right? Not in his divinity, but we're going to be like him in a sense in character, right? We'll be sanctified completely without sin, able to reflect God's glory. And because of this, we need to constantly meditate on our hope, that our hope is eternal, right? It's not going to perish. It will not fade or spoil or go out of style. Three, Truly beautiful women have a gentle and meek or quiet spirit. Now, this meekness or gentleness and quietness, it means having an inner calmness, having a tranquility or peacefulness. Now, you can't fake meekness. 
Now, you can't fake meekness and quietness. I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> um, sooner or later, the situation is going to bring out what's going on in our hearts. The Bible says, you know, um, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So what's in our heart, it's going to pour out eventually. And we can think, man, I'm so peaceful. I'm so quiet. I'm good. But placed under the right circumstances, some people are chuckling because they know um, you, you get the right amount of pressure. And, and, and then the pride may rise up and our perceived humility is exposed. I remember, just to give you an example of what not to do, um, my first year of marriage. <laughs> and I can't even remember what the conflict was about, but I was steaming. I was upset. And I thought, I just need to get this off my chest. I just need to talk to Shy, that's my husband, and let him know, you know what I'm feeling and vent, you know, vent my anger. And I was really working on not doing that. And so I said, well, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I went to the other room. Well, we, we were in a basement apartment in D.C., so there wasn't another room, but, like, behind the other partition. <laughs> and, um, and so I'm praying. I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, this is what's going on. This is what's on my heart. I need your help. You know, I'm tempted to just, yeah, vomit on my husband with what I'm feeling. Well, before I could say amen, I was behind the other partition <laughs> in the room, venting to shy. <laughs> this is what's going on, you know. Like, I had no self-control. I could not be slow to speak. I could not be slow to speak. And it's just, it just, it's a reminder of how much I need the Lord. To be gentle and quiet, we need the Lord. Because I think some people, they can look at, they can look I get people who look at me and say, oh, you, you know, you have a calm voice and like, you know, you feel, you know, kind of, I don't know. You know, you have a calm voice. You just seem so peaceful. But look, the heart, the heart, it is exposed. We're all sinners, right? So this is not something you're born with, right? Because you're shy that you're going to be gentle and quiet. No, this is something that the Lord has to do in us. And that word for meek it's so interesting because a lot of the times people think, you know, meekness is weakness, you know. Um, but that word for meek here is the same word used to describe Jesus right before the triumphal entry where, you know, he tells two of his disciples to go into the village and get this donkey. And scripture says, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, that word humble there is meek and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus had told them to go get these, this donkey and he's going to ride in on this donkey. So it's really, it's a picture of a king, the king of kings, mind you, choosing to ride on a, on a donkey, choosing to take the humble route. Humble Jesus, displaying the fruit of the spirit, having a gentle and quiet heart. Our Lord was meek, right? So meekness, again, is not weakness, Therefore, in our text, you know, this is not a woman who doesn't have a voice, who's a doormat, right, who people are running over. That, that's not what it means. It means it's a woman who displays power under control. She's choosing to submit herself to God and his will. And she models after Jesus. That's what it means to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Four. A truly beautiful woman desires what is precious to God. Well, what is most precious to God? God himself. 
God himself is what's most precious to God. Since God is perfect, he knows what perfectly deserves worship, and it is himself. Worship means to ascribe worth to. God knows that he is the most worthy of all. He is the only one who deserves all praise and worship and honor and glory. It's so much different. You know, when I was in college, I took a philosophy or religion course, and the professor was not a Christian, and really it seemed like she kind of did all that she could do to try to discredit Christianity. And one thing I remember her saying about God, oh, he makes people worship him. He's just so, like, self, almost like self-centered, so arrogant. Let me correct that. God is not arrogant. His self-centeredness is so different from our self-centeredness because he's perfect. He has every right to be self-centered, right? Because God is the most glorious thing. The most glorious person is God. So for him to not say that he deserves worship and praise, he would not be being honest, right? He would not be, be true, but he knows I am true. I deserve honor and glory, and we don't give it to him enough, honestly. So rather than draw attention to herself, the truly beautiful woman wants to draw attention to her God. She wants to worship God and honor him above all else. We're going to look at a few scriptures which speak about God's beauty. They're not on, uh, they are on the PowerPoint. The first one is Psalm chapter 50, verse 2. It says, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Psalm 71, verse 8 says, my, ha- my mouth is filled with your praise and with your beauty all the day. God's beauty. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. That word for glory is beauty. It can be translated beauty. And the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And then we see Psalm 27, verse 4 one we may be more familiar with, where David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Our God is beautiful. These are just a few scriptures that I've pulled out from the, script, from the Bible. Our God is beautiful. And let me remind you quickly of, of one who defeated sin, Jesus, the Son of God. The Bible says he came to this earth, took on flesh, became a human being in order to redeem mankind. So what he did, he lived a perfect life, perfectly obeying God's law. And then, not only that, he then went to the cross. Scripture says it was not because he deserved to die. He had committed no sin. We are the ones who deserve death. We are the ones who sinned. And God in his mercy, Jesus said, you know, I'm going to take on their sin so that they don't have to bear the punishment for sin, and I'm going to bear it. I will bear the wrath in place of them so that they can go free. What an example of sacrificial love. How beautiful 
The Bible says, how beautiful are those who, who bring the good news? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? Jesus had beautiful feet because he brought it. He brought the good news that we don't have to, to die in our sins. Right? We can be saved through Jesus Christ. And not only did he die, but he resurrected from the grave, proving that he was innocent, proving that he had all power in his hand, that he conquered the, the grave, that he conquered sin and death and Satan. And the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We can call upon him and he saves us and transforms us by his beautiful power, by his glorious might. And not only that, scripture says he's coming back. He's coming back to receive his very own, his people. And he's going to take us home to be with him forever. And we will be glorified, like I spoke of before, right? Where we will be like him. The Bible says we see now dimly, right? But then we will see face to face. We will behold our beautiful Savior. But what's crazy is a lot of people don't see Jesus as beautiful. A lot of people don't see God as beautiful. And there's a scripture in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, when speaking about Jesus. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus was the most beautiful one, and yet this beauty was not about physicality. It was not about how he looked on the outside. It was all about who he was and is. And this was not something that we would be able to detect in the flesh, right? This is something that the Holy Spirit has to reveal to us. And, and this is why so many reject him. So many are fixated upon this world that they miss beholding God. They miss him altogether. His beauty often goes unnoticed by those who live according to the world because, see, Jesus never would have made the magazine covers, right? He, he was not the popular one. God uses average-looking vessels to accomplish great works. And, and, and God, for example, God taught, taught Samuel this. Uh, there's a scripture where Samuel, he goes to anoint king. After King Saul, there was going to be another king. Samuel goes to anoint king, and what does he do? He looks for the one who looks like he should be king on the, outward, on the outside. That he misses, he's about to miss David. God says, no, that's not the one I've chosen. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Maybe he was focused upon his height because Saul was very tall. The scripture says, he says, I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. See, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that shepherd boy, David, who wasn't even looking to be king, he was away with the sheep, God used him to be king and ultimately to point to the good shepherd, which is Jesus, right? Scripture says that God chooses the seemingly foolish things or the weak things of the world to shame the wise. God used Jesus, his unloving, unlovely physical form, as a vessel to display God's glory. 
It seemed ugly, right? The cross seemed ugly and dark, but it manifested his eternal purpose of saving a people. So don't pass up Jesus because he's not popular, right? Don't overlook the Lord because he's not popular. Regardless of what he looked like physically, his radiance will continue to shine forever because beauty is essential to God. So there's a a quote by R.C. Sproul. He says, just as the normative standard of the good and the true is God, so the ultimate standard of beauty is God. And what's wonderful is that God, he never changes. His standard of beauty doesn't change either, right? So beauty is defined by God. He is intrinsically beautiful. If we want to be beautiful, we must behold him. And this is how women became beautiful, right? In scripture, they focused upon godly adorning, which began in the hidden person of the heart, an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, you know, you most favor those who you spend the most time around, right? Birds of a feather flock together. You know, you'll hear people say that those who are married, a lot of times they'll start to look like each other and sound like each other. And Shy and I, we do that sometimes. Like, we'll say the same word at the same time or be thinking something similar even if we don't communicate it right then. Well, if we want to be more like God, if we truly want to be beautiful, we have to spend time around him. The people that we're modeling ourselves after, that's who we're going to most resemble. And David knew this. That's why he said, I want to spend all of the days of my life dwelling and beholding the beauty of God. He knew God was beautiful. He was in awe of God. Now, in view of all this, I want to ask this question. What is a beautiful woman, right? We know that it's a woman who beholds God. Well, in the scripture, there are a few people who are mentioned as beautiful. So what do we do with those people, right? There are those who we... we, there's a note that they were attractive or they were beautiful. One of those people is Sarai. Sarai, her, she became Sarah, that's Abraham's wife. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 11, Abraham says to Sarah, his wife, he says, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. This literally meant a woman of beautiful appearance, right? And he said this, actually, he said this when she was 75, Okay. So Sarai was, she was physically attractive, and she was even causing men, if you remember, to stumble when she was 90, right? Men were still trying to talk to Sarai. Um, And so, but also in the nearby chapters, another thing that we see is that she also laughed at God's promises. If you remember, she lied about it. She denied it. She was jealous of her maiden, Hagar, Right? To the point that Hagar had to flee to get away from her. She was so mean to her. So physical beauty wasn't everything, right? It isn't everything. And one thing about the narratives is we don't always hear God's perspective, right? So Abraham might have been saying, Sarah, you are fine. All these guys, man, you're a dime piece. You, you know, you got it together. But God might have been saying, Sarah, you're a hot mess. Look at your heart, you know, outwardly, okay, you may, you know, but, but what's really important is what's going on on the inside. Well, what's amazing is we continue reading in our, our text in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
Sarai comes up again, Sarah. So we don't just get the Genesis account as the last that we hear about her. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It's interesting because this scripture seems to redeem Sarah, right? That despite these seasons of doubt and discontentment, disbelief, regardless of her sin, she ultimately submitted herself to the Lord. And she submitted herself to her husband. And this qualified her as a truly beautiful woman in God's sight. So she's referred to here as a holy woman, possessing a gentle and quiet spirit. I mean, she's used as as an example. Her name is mentioned, right? That she was not given to fear, not because she was perfect, but because God's grace was working in her life, right? Notice that scripture does not say that her looks are what qualified her in the sight of God. How is she truly defined as beautiful? By her character and her faith and her submission. These traits and these virtues come from God. And I just quickly, I want to say a word to any single sisters here. Because I think sometimes there can be, from when I've spoken to some single sisters, there can be this idea of, well, what does it mean for me? Does this mean this doesn't apply to me because Sarah was married and it speaks specifically about her talking about her husband? And I just want to say that you can be beautiful. (laughs) This does not mean that you have to be married, right? That you have to have children in order to be beautiful. And I think often when we come across scriptures like Titus 2 or Proverbs 31, um, it's easy for us to use those passages and similar kind of women's passages as though they are all that the Bible has to say about women. That being a mother and a wife is the pinnacle of biblical womanhood. And that's not true. And, and often, I think we look at those scriptures to the neglect of understanding our primary role as daughters of the king. Right? That your primary identity in this room, single or married, as a Christian, that your primary role is that you belong to God. Right? So your primary role is not that you're a mother or whatever the, whatever the responsibilities that you have but it's that you belong to God. So single women, married women, we all can be beautiful according to the scripture's definition because think about this also. Is not Jesus our bridegroom, right? Do we not have an intimate relationship with him? He laid his life down for us. So he didn't give you, well, he gave you a rock, not a ring, but himself, right? For all of us. He's given us a white garment to wear as he's forgiven us of our sins. And he calls the church his bride. And that is a picture of the intimate relationship he desires to have with us, right? Whether single or married, we are called to submit to God. And we're also called to submit to whatever the authorities are in our life. And that may look different depending upon the individual, but God uses them all. Our beauty comes from treasuring God. Scripture says in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Where is our treasure today? Is it in charm 
which is deceptive, in our beauty, physical beauty, which is fleeting, or is it in the Lord? I just, I have a few questions that I think might be helpful that you can jot down and you can think about a little later as we consider where our treasure is today. One question, do I spend more time flipping through magazines or in God's word? How much money do I spend on clothes, cosmetics, and body treatments versus giving to the church or giving to others or missions? When I get dressed, is it for my own glory or the glory of God? Do I spend more time on fashion blogs, YouTube, or online dating sites, or in the word and in prayer? Do I spend the majority of my time beautifying myself outwardly or inwardly? And lastly, lastly, Is my desire to be beautiful rooted and wanting attention or drawing much attention to God? The next slide, there's a quote by Carolyn Mahaney. She has a book called True Beauty. And it says, a glimpse of God's beauty makes all the difference in what we see when we look in the mirror. Once we see God's beauty, we will never see beauty the same way again. True beauty is to behold and reflect the beauty of God. So the only way we will be truly satisfied and fulfilled is if we're treasuring the one who is eternally beautiful. And one thing I just wanted to share with you, one thing we've been doing at Del Rey, actually, Pastor Garrett, he's been encouraging us to hold on to the promises of God. And so I just have a few promises, scripture promises that you can hold on to as you may have believed certain lies, and then we can cling to God's word together. So when tempted to doubt how God made you, you can hold on to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 21. It says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. When tempted to dress for the attention of men, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. When tempted to judge your worth according to your physical looks, hold on to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. Because this is the one to whom I will look. And he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When tempted to overeat, hold on to Psalm 107 verses 8 through 9. It says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. When tempted to undereat, hold on to John chapter 15, verse 9. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And when tempted to compare yourself to another woman, hold on to um, Psalm chapter 16, verse 6, which says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. All of these promises and more, there's so many more, should be what we hold on to as we seek to be women who are truly beautiful.
knowing that God is working in us to draw us closer to him. And what wonderful promises, right, that we can cling to. And another one is that we can, we can know that our Savior will come back. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So again, our Lord is going to come. He's going to take us home. We will be like him once we behold his beauty. Now, I started off talking to you about my roommate, Virgie, my first roommate, who was 91 years old. And I told you that our conversation was, it was eye-opening, to say the least. And it was actually a little bit sad because, you know, as I got to know Virgie more and more, as we spent three, we lived together for three years, I realized that Virgie really didn't have a concept of her age, honestly. I mean, so there were times where I was there because she was actually falling and they were attempting to put her in a home. So she asked if I would come and stay with her and help her at night. And so there were some nights where sometimes she was too heavy for me to, to lift her up. So we would have to call the firemen in and they would come and they would get her and lift her up. And I mean, this is Virgie, 91 years old. She would be flirting with the firemen. I mean, really, like flirting with the firemen. And, um, and she just, yeah, she just really didn't have a concept of her age. I, I really don't think so. Um, and <clears throat> she kept these closets full of clothes that were outdated. And I, I remember telling Virgie, like, let's, you know, I can help you. Let's just clean out things. I mean, clothes from the 60s and 70s, some of which she would never be able to fit into anymore. But she was just determined to hold on to these things. And it was easy for me to see because the clothes were so outdated, right? But, you know, I had my own struggles, struggling with buying clothes. But it makes me think about what really, really matters. So shortly after our conversation, Virgie got sick. And um, she was actually on life support. And when I showed up to the hospital, so all of her family was here in D.C. We were in Los Angeles. So I was kind of like the closest, the only person who was there. And the doctor looked at me and said, well, what are her wishes? You know, did she want to stay alive or, or not? And I mean, I had no idea. But the only thing that I could think of was that Virgie was not a Christian, as far as I knew. And so I said, keep her alive. Keep her alive. Because I thought if I could just have one more opportunity to share Christ with her, just realizing how close death was for her, um, that I really wanted to do that. And, and Virgie, she was on life support for several weeks. I would come and visit her, and she was completely unconscious. I mean, tube in her throat. And one day I came to the hospital, and we had to, I had to suit up because she had had an infection, an internal infection. And I had to suit up, and I came, uh, and she popped her head up. I thought, what? <laughs> Virgie, Virgie's back. <laughs> um, <laughs> no tubes. I mean, she was back. And I, and I just talked to her. I said, Virgie? Because, I mean, literally, I've been talking with her about the Lord, living with her. I came there to serve her because she was falling, thinking, oh, I'm just going to serve her. She's a close friend of the family. But then I realized she just, she doesn't know the Lord. I'm like, Lord, maybe you might be sending me here to do more than just serve her physically, but also to prepare her for 
to meet you. And, um, and so when Virgie popped up that day in the hospital and, and looked at me, and I was like, Virgie! And she probably asked for a soda pop, you know, right there in the hospital, because she just loved, yeah, drinking soda. And, and, um, and so I was just like, Virgie, like, oh my goodness, like, you know, I'm just, it's, it's good, you know, to see you. And, and I told her, I said, do you remember that I had a conversation with you, you know, while you were pretty much unconscious, just talking to you about Jesus and, and why he came and, and why it's so important to trust in him. And we had that talk, and she said, you know, she said, I believe. Um, and it wasn't, I mean, it was several, maybe weeks or so after that, that Virgie passed away. Um, I'm thankful that I had that conversation with her. Honestly, I don't know where Virgie is, you know. I know that she said that she made that commitment to Jesus. But two things that I do know. One is that God was so merciful to her and gave her so many opportunities to call out to him again and again and again. Um, And then two, all the things, whether that's the flirting, the sin issues, the lust, or the clothes that she had there, she was not able to take those things with her when she left. When she closed her eyes, that was it. And I, I think that, you know, it's sobering to think about eternity and to think about meeting God and to think about what's most important in my life. I think we can be so busy in the hustle and bustle of life that we forget about what's most valuable, which is having a relationship with the Lord and being sure about where we're going to go when we die. And so um, I just wanted to just close by saying maybe we can take a a couple minutes to pray um, just right where you are because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, we've put our trust and our hope in worldly things that are going to fade away. And in doing that, we've neglected to put our hope fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we could just take a couple minutes, and we're going to break, and we're going to have a panel.